couldn't see anything in the depths of the cave. He reached for his bag and for his tamboritza. He was going to run as fast as he could. And when they slept, they had no dreams. Because dreams are stories that you see when you're asleep. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. Tall tales, fairy tales, folk tales, personal and family tales, and more. We've been doing it since 2013, and it's always a pleasure for me every time that you tune in and bring these stories into your home and into your heart. I'm Sam Payne, your host, and uh, it's going to be a great hour. You know, we're going to bring you some stories that are about storytelling, right? Kind of meta, right? We're going to bring you a story from Bob Reiser called The Story Tree. We'll bring you a story from the great Sid Lieberman, the Chicago storyteller, a story called Zen and the Art of Storytelling, about telling stories at a company picnic. And we'll bring you a story from Dan Kedding called The Tear that you're going to love. All this and, of course, an entry in the Radio Family Journal, a memory about my younger brother who, when he was a kid, was determined to win the Heisman Trophy. You're going to hear a conversation with Teresa Love as well about the Madeline Lengel classic, A Wrinkle in Time. It's going to be a great hour. And to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear this hour, I'm pleased to have in the studio with me Lacey Ivey, one of our assistant producers. Lacey, it's great to have you with me. So good to be here. Tell us about what we're going to hear. So today we're going to hear a story from Dan Ketting, and it is called The Tear. And this story is about a little boy who just grows up in his little village, as you do, <laughs> and he uh, goes off wandering from the village, and he comes across this dragon. But this <laughs> dragon is its a friendly dragon. It's a storyteller, and he just tells him all these stories every time the boy finds him. <laughs> and the boy tries to bring the dragon to his village to, to see what he can do to help his village get more people there. And it's just a really sweet, fun story, and I I think you guys will really enjoy it. The story is called The Tear, and it's told by the great Chicago-area storyteller Dan Kedding, who tells fantastical tales from all over the place, as well as personal tales about the neighborhood where he grew up. This is one of the former, one of those fantastical tales, right? The Tear, told for you by Dan Kedding, here on The Appleseed. Once a long time ago, there was a boy who lived in a village, and his job was to take the sheep every day into the foothills where they could graze. He took his dog along, who had watched the sheep, while he played his tamburitza, a little stringed instrument. You see, the boy loved to listen to the old people as they sing their songs, and he would take his instrument into the foothills with him and learn the songs and play them. One day they went deep into the foothills, and they came to a valley they'd never been before. The grass was long and lush, and the dog chased the sheep down into the valley. And the boy looked around and saw a cliff, and when he came closer to the cliff, he saw a cave. He thought to himself, now this is a good thing to know. For in case of a storm, I can bring my sheep here, and they'll be safe. And the cave was very, very dark, and the boy couldn't see inside at all. But there was a large rock in front of the cave, and he sat on it, put his lunch next to him, picked up his little instrument, and he started to play. He played for an hour, he played for two. Then he decided to have some lunch, and he put his instrument down, and when he did, a voice came out of the cave, and the voice said, Play another one. And the boy looked around. He couldn't see anything in the depths of the cave, and he reached for his bag 
and for his tamboritza he was going to run as fast as he could when the voice said, Please, please play another one. The boy relaxed and played another song, and the voice told him a story. It was a beautiful story. And the boy played another song, and the voice told him another story. And at the end of the afternoon, the voice said, Will you come back and visit me again? And the boy said, Yes, yes, I will. And every day the boy brought his sheep to that valley, and every day he sang songs while the voice told him stories. And the stories were wonderful. Stories of knights in armor, stories of valor and battles, stories of love, stories of sadness, stories of happiness, stories of promises kept and promises broken. And every day the boy listened to the stories, and every day he sang songs. And one day he stayed later than usual, and the sun was low in the sky, and he listened as the voice told him a sad, sad story, a story about how he was the last of his kind, how lonely he was, how frightened he was to die alone in a cave. And as the boy listened, the sun crept into the cave, and for the first time the boy saw who was telling him the stories. First, the sun glistened off the razor-sharp talons, and then the tree-trunk-like legs, the long body covered in green scales, the leathery wings folded at its side, the long serpent-like neck, the rounded horns, and the smoke curling from its nostrils. And the boy was looking at a dragon. And as the dragon told its story, the tears rolled down its cheeks. And the boy walked into the cave and placed his hand on the dragon's side. The dragon's eyes flew open. Aren't you afraid of me? The boy smiled and said, no. The dragon said, I could reduce you to ashes in a second. And the boy laughed. I could rip you apart with my claws. And the boy giggled. The dragon looked down and said, Why aren't you afraid? And the boy said, I can't be afraid of you. I know your story. And the dragon grinned a toothy grin and said, Will you come back? And the boy said, Of course. And every day the boy came back to visit with the dragon. One day the boy said, Why don't you come to the village and live with my family? That way you won't be alone in this old cave. And the dragon shook his great head and said, Our people have been at war for a thousand years. If I came to your village, the men would grab their spears and their bows and arrows and swords and attack me. No, no, it would never work. And the boy said, You wait, I'll come up with an idea. And every day the boy thought of a new plan. But one day, when he was listening to the old people sing, one of the old men in between songs said, Isn't it sad how no one comes to our village? They all go to that village by the river. No one ever visits here anymore. And we have such good singers, don't you think? And the boy knew exactly what to do. He ran to the mayor's house and knocked on the door, and the mayor said, What do you want? And the boy said, Is it true that no one comes to visit our village anymore? And the mayor looked very sad and said, Yes, it is. They all go down to the village by the river. It's so sad. And the boy said, I know someone who would bring the people back. You do? 
Who's this? And the boy said, I know a storyteller, the most wonderful storyteller in the entire world. He would bring people back. Oh, that's wonderful, said the mayor. I will come with you to meet this man. Well, there's a problem, said the boy. You see, he's very um, shy. Yes, that's it. He's very, very shy. If you want to meet him, you'll have to blindfold yourself. Bring the city council with you, and you'll all wear blindfolds, and I'll lead you there. Blindfolds? Well, if it'll bring people back to our village, I'll do it, said the mayor. And so the next morning, the mayor and the entire city council met the boy, and he led them to the valley. And when he got there, he put a blindfold around each one of their eyes, and he led them by the hand down to the cave. They sat in a circle, and the dragon came out and started to tell them stories. He told them stories of great valor that stirred their blood. He told them stories of love that melted their hearts. He told them sad stories that brought tears to their eyes and funny stories that made them laugh and roll in the grass. And after several hours, he finally told them one last story, the story of how lonely he was, how afraid he was of dying all alone. And as he told the story, a tear rolled down the dragon's cheeks, and that tear fell right on the mayor's hand. And the mayor lifted up his blindfold and looked at that tear lying in his palm, and then he looked up at the dragon. And without a word, he reached out and touched the dragon's side, and he nudged the man next to him, who took off his blindfold and touched the dragon, who nudged the woman next to him, and so on around the circle, till all the city council members had their hands on the dragon's side. The dragon's eyes flew open, and he looked down, and the mayor said, Will you come to our village and be our storyteller? And the dragon said, Yes, yes, I would like that. And the mayor said, Could we have one little favor? The dragon roared and said, Anything, what is it? The mayor said, Can we have a ride? And the entire city council and the mayor and the boy jumped on the dragon's back. He unfolded his huge leathery wings and flew down to the village. And the people came from all the houses and all the farms around the village, and they listened to stories for days. And word spread throughout the countryside that a great storyteller was living in the village, and people came from all around to hear the stories, the stories of promises kept and promises broken. And many, many years later, when the dragon was old and it was his time to pass on, he didn't die alone in a cave. He died surrounded by his friends in the village, his great head resting in the lap of a man who had once been a boy and had sung him songs. And all the fear and all the hate had disappeared with one tear. A story told for you by the great Chicago-era storyteller Dan Kedding. I love to hear Dan's voice. Dan's got such a rich storyteller's voice. You could just kind of <laughs> fall right into it, couldn't you? It's so true. He really has that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a great story. What, what, what is it that you love so much about that story? I There's one line, actually, that I really love about this. That He said, I can't be afraid of you. I know your story. Yeah. And I just think that's so powerful of, you know, Something that brings people together is knowing who they are and knowing where they came from. And even for me, I feel like I have a hard time connecting with people sometimes. 
And until I get to know them is when I'm able to really break out of that shell and not be so afraid to speak out. And so I just think that was so powerful to hear that phrase that I can't be afraid of you because I know your story now. Mm, Yeah. And there are lots of ways to learn each other's stories, right? But none of them are automatic. You don't automatically get to know somebody on social media. (laughs) You don't automatically (laughs) get to know somebody conversing in the living room. You really kind of have to go after it, don't you? You really have to concertedly try to get to know somebody. Yeah, it takes a lot of effort, I think, on both parts to be willing to share it and to be willing to listen. Yeah, it sure is true. And uh, one of the things I love about Dan Kedding is, you know, he he started hearing stories from his Croatian grandmother, learned a lot of stories as uh, as a kid in that way. And he tells a lot of those stories. He tells a lot of those stories that he learned from his grandmother. But he, he, he has gone further afield. You know, he's expanded his own storytelling vocabulary even beyond what he learned from his grandmother and now tells stories of his own make and stories from all over the world, and it's always a delight to hear a Dan Kedding tale. We're glad to have been able to bring it to you here. And Lacey, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Lots more coming up on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's so great to have you with me on the Appleseed today. If you're just joining us, you heard uh, at the top of the hour a story from the Chicago area storyteller Dan Kedding, a story called The Tear. And following the tone set by that story, a little later we're going to have a story called The Story Tree from Bob Reiser and a story called Zen and the Art of Storytelling from Sid Lieberman. These are stories about telling stories. But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes spark thoughts and stories for you that you can share with the people you love around the kitchen table or the living room, here's a memory of mine about my little brother who, when he was a kid, was determined to win the prestigious Heisman Trophy. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. I don't know if my parents wanted athletes for sons. My dad is a folk singer. And when he was younger, when I was a kid, a local TV station wanted to do a little public interest profile on him. So they brought an anchor person and a camera guy to the house and worked for an afternoon to get candid footage of family life at the home of their subject. For part of the afternoon, that meant getting shots of my dad tossing the football to me in the front yard. I was nine, maybe, and I thought I'd look fantastic on TV, running out from the snap, cutting right, turning around just in time to catch the pass and make the play. And by the play, I mean my dad tossing the ball 15 or 20 feet with no other players on the field. And it took us, oh, I don't know, eight, ten takes before I caught a pass. In fairness to me, I had been more successful in games of pass past. It was the camera. It was the television anchor person. It was the... Well, maybe I ought to dispense with the excuses. I'd better stick with it took eight or ten takes before I caught a pass. We were, for a long time, four brothers in my family, and I'm the oldest. And the next brother and the next, well, neither of them even pretended to have a serious interest in sports, though a couple of us played Little League Baseball and had a pretty good time and didn't embarrass ourselves. But the fourth of us, my brother Joshua, he was different. 
He was a football fan, even as a tiny kid. When he was in elementary school, if you asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up, he had a ready answer. He was going to win the Heisman Trophy. He was serious enough about it that by the time he was finished with elementary school, he had already written speeches for my mom and dad to give when reporters approached them to ask how they felt about their son, who had just won the Heisman Trophy. Well, when my brother was, I don't know, 11 or so, he discovered the guitar. He figured a lot of stuff out on his own. My dad taught him a bunch of stuff, and he practiced the guitar like a Heisman winner practices football. He kept track of the hours he spent practicing guitar and had competitions with other musician friends, whichever guy could work on music in one way or another for more hours in the week than the other guy would win lunch from the guy who worked on music for less time during the week. Josh got a regular gig at a pizza place 17 miles away from our house. He didn't have a driver's license, let alone a car, so he would walk to the gig starting in the morning. He'd get to the gig about gig time and then get a ride home. And he pushed his guitar ahead of him in an old baby stroller. At 15 years old, he got a seat in the jazz ensemble at Brigham Young University. Synthesis, that ensemble was called, and he played all over the world with those guys. And it almost cost him his high school grades. Nowadays, Josh lives and works in L.A. His house is the former residence of the famous songwriter Elliot Smith. And Joshua makes music on his guitar that would kind of bend your brain. And when you look at that guy, you might be forgiven for thinking, that guy was once going to win the Heisman Trophy? I mean, he looks nothing like a football player. He's a tall, string bean guy. I mean, imagine Jack Skellington, and you've got a... As good an idea as you need of the way Josh is built, right down to the hairstyle. But look at the discipline, the focus, the unique vision, the single-mindedness that has taken Joshua to the place where he is. And you might go, yeah, I, I kind of get it. Some of that stuff, that stuff Joshua has, that's Heisman stuff. Well, the downside is that mom and dad will never be able to give their I'm proud of my Heisman winner speeches. That's not a big deal uh, when you think about it. And if you think that the football fire is out, whenever my brother is in town, he and my dad do sit down in front of a Brigham Young University football game. BYU football being Joshua's first love. BYU's jazz band Synthesis being one of his later and just as serious loves. And last time my brother and I got on a Zoom call together, this very week, Joshua came on screen with something in his hands, not a guitar, but a football, a birthday gift from his sweetheart, Vanessa. It's just what he wanted, and it's a heck of a souvenir of the road Joshua took to find his place. Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. Lots more coming up. You're going to hear from Bob Reiser and Sid Lieberman. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Stories come into our lives in so many ways, from families passing them along, telling to telling, from the pages of great books, from radio and podcast, through songs on screen. 
and exploring all of the ways that great stories get into our hearts and minds is part of what we love here on The Appleseed. And it's my great delight to be joined today in the studio by Teresa Love. I could talk about a lot of different things talking about Teresa Love. First of all, welcome. It's great to have you. So happy to be here. And certainly, Teresa Love has been a longtime storytelling instructor, mostly with university students, which is fantastic and fascinating. But also there's an aspect of what you do that has to do with theater for children as well. You've been a longtime associate of the Young Company here at Brigham Young University. and Absolutely. That's been my heart is <laughs> stories for children. And it just happens to be in theater a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Adaptations of stories like Shakespeare's Macbeth and other things. <laughs> We've followed a lot of what you've been doing with great interest, as has so many people. But we want to talk a little bit today about a book that's important to you. And we invited you to pick the book because, of course, we couldn't pick a book that's important to you. <laughs> so, so, so what book should we talk about? Oh, I would love to talk about A Wrinkle in Time oh. by Madeline, Madeline Lingle. I really think that that book changed my life. Mm. I'm not sure exactly if I, my teacher read it to me, my our fourth yeah. grade teacher. So it was that standard thing of you came in after lunch and lunch recess and she would read this book to us. Those were the most beautiful elementary school experiences, weren't they? Oh my Coming goodness. in and having your teacher, who you loved anyway, sit you down and read a book to you. It Those was were, incredible. Yeah. It, again, it changed my life because yeah. I feel like that's all I've done most of my life is <laughs> tell stories for children. But that book also was before, you know, it was before Star Trek. It was yeah. before all of the dystopian series and all that kind of stuff. It was just out of nowhere. Yeah. And to have a girl who was the protagonist, yep. who wore glasses like I did and was smart and awkward like I was, to have you know her mother be a scientist, mm -hmm. you know a brilliant scientist, and then to have all this science fiction happen yeah. that was not just based on you know imaginary you know space adventures, but yeah. also Madeline Lingle had a strong faith, yeah. uh, Christian faith. Such a remarkable aspect of those books that kind of science and fantasy and faith all kind of absolutely meet in this center place. It's really wonderful. right. And then when I got older and I realized that there's a passage of Isaiah in, in there, <laughs> you know, combined with uh, you know a Pegasus horse and. The theory of relativity and all the things that were going on in science at yeah. the time. Oh, my goodness. I, I mean, no wonder it changed my life. <laughs> and, of course, it's one of several books, right, set in that world with those characters. My dad, by and large, in my family, was the person who introduced me to books. Uh -huh. But the, the Wrinkle in Time series was introduced to me by my mother. And there was something very, very special about that. It, it has retained a very, very special place in my heart, being one of the few books that my mom introduced me to, you know. Right. And, yeah. you know, she wrote across the ages, too. Yeah. So she wrote for children. And then later on, I discovered this wonderful philosophical book that she wrote that I read as a young adult, as a mature woman now. <laughs> I read, she, there are YouTube videos of, of her being interviewed, yeah. and I love to hear her talk about her writing and her beliefs. And she's just an extraordinary person. One of those authors who can meet you wherever you are, right? If you discover her as a young person, 
you're going to find her again as an adult and find that she's, you know, that she's meeting you at that level as well. Absolutely. And I think that's the sort of uh, standard I have for all of my theater productions, too, is I don't want to create stuff that only a six-year-old is interested in. I want the six-year-old and I want the 12-year-old and I want the grandpa and grandma who came. I want everybody to find something because that's what I fell in love with, with with Lingle. (laughs) And of course, for you, that was a read aloud experience first. It was, which was really uh, a challenge with Mrs. Uh, Who? (laughs) <laughs> who had spoken very long syllables and Mrs. Witch. It was it, it was just something that I can tell you exactly where in the room I sat. Yeah. I can tell you who I sat next to. I can tell you what my teacher looked like. I can tell you just with agony when suddenly it was time to go on to math. So. <laughs> it's so interesting to think that not only... Uh, not not only does the story of A Wrinkle in Time contain the story of A Wrinkle in Time, right? But it contains for you the story of your fourth grade experience, you know? You, Absolutely. You, you touch that book and like a zip file, it opens into, <laughs> as you say, who you were sitting next to and <laughs> what they were wearing. Yes. <laughs> what your elementary school classroom looked like. You yes. Know? It's one of the magical things about these experiences with literature is you're not just experiencing the literature, you're capturing the experience you're having as a young person. Yes, the emotions all flood back. Yeah. Well, A Wrinkle in Time. Of course, again, as we say, just one of many books set in that world with those characters, but also just one of an enormous body of work that has things for... Gosh, things for you wherever you are, right? And it's such a delight to talk to you about discovering Madeline Lengel as a child and then and then re-meeting her later on and then re-meeting her later on as, as there's something for you at every stage. Thank you, Sam. It's such a pleasure to talk with you about this. <laughs> well, you know, we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories for you that you can share with the people that you love. And if our conversation about A Wrinkle in Time has sparked your memory of reading that book, and if there's someone with whom you can share that book, well, now's a great time. And of course, if talking about that book sparks memories for you of another book that you love that you can share, well, there's nothing wrong with that. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, and it's such a pleasure to chat with our friend Teresa Love about a Madeline Lengel classic. There's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. Stick around for stories from Bob Reiser and Sid Lieberman. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you with us today on The Apple Seed. A moment ago, you heard a conversation with Teresa Love about the Madeline Lengel classic, A Wrinkle in Time. And before that, uh, an entry in the Radio Family Journal about my little brother, who, when he was a kid, wanted with all his heart to win the Heisman Trophy. Coming up next, a story called The Story Tree. This is from Bob Reiser. And it's a story about a village that gets its stories from a magical story tree. In fact, the story is called The Story Tree. Happy to bring it to you, Bob Reiser on the Appleseed. Long, long ago, when human beings were new to the earth, the people were wonderful hunters. 
and they were wonderful farmers and potters and singers. But they had no stories. At the end of the day, families would come home, they'd sit around dinner, and they'd go to sleep because they had nothing to say to each other, no stories to tell. And when they slept, they had no dreams because dreams are stories that you see when you're asleep. Well, all of that changed thanks to a boy, a girl, their mother, and their father. This is how it happened. One day, the family rose as usual, and the boy went out to do what he did best, to hunt for animals, to bring back for supper. Down the path he walked. Then he stopped. To the side, he saw a little windy path he had never seen before, and he began to follow it. Well, it zigged, and it zagged, and it went this way and that way, through the grass and the woods, until it came out into a great big clearing. In the middle of the clearing stood this old, old tree. It was all gnarled and twisted with its limbs going this way and that way and had lumps and bumps all over it. Well, the boy sat down against the tree. The sun was a little hot and he closed his eyes to rest for a minute. Suddenly, a voice came out. Hey, you! The boy looked around. There was nobody there. Closed his eyes again. You! I'm speaking to you! The boy turned around. There was no one in the clearing, except for the tree. Yes! Me! I'm talking to you, boy! The boy's mouth dropped open. Trees don't talk. Well, I do! What kind of a tree are you? And instead of speaking... The tree sang, The story tree, the story tree. Listen, 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 listen to the story tree. The boy looked at him. Well, that's very nice, but what's a story? And so the tree told him stories. He told him the stories about the sun and the stars and the moon. And he told story after story. And as he spoke, the boy could see everything happening before his eyes. And before they knew it, the sun was starting to go down. Well, said the tree, that's all the stories for today. But, uh... Why don't you come back tomorrow? I'll tell you more stories. Well, the boy turned around and ran for his home. He ran as fast as he could. But by the time he got home, the sun had already gone down, and his mother was standing in front of the wigwam. She looked very angry. Where have you 
spin. And the boy gave that answer that children always give when they're asked that question. Nowhere. Hmm. And what were you doing? And the boy gave that answer that children always give when they're asked that question. Nothing. Hmm. And I see you've brought back no meat for supper. So tonight we're just going to have vegetables. And so they ate vegetables. And then they went right to sleep. Because they didn't have stories. And so they had nothing to tell one another. But in the middle of the night, the boy began to have something he had never had. Dreams. And as he lay there in his bed, his mother heard him talking <laughs> and laughing yeah, and singing story tea, story tea. Hmm. The next morning, the mother waited till the boy had left. Then she turned to the boy's sister. Listen, your brother is up to something very strange. Now, I know he's a good boy, can't be anything too bad, but I want to know what's going on. Why don't you follow him and see what he's up to? And so the boy's sister began to skip down the trail after the boy. She followed behind him. She saw him walk down the regular path. Then she saw him turn off into this little tiny path. She saw him zig. She saw him zag through the trees until they came out on this clearing. And then she saw him walk right up to this twisted old tree with lumps and bumps all over it and start to talk to it. Well, this was too much for her. She walked right up and she said, What's going on here? And the tree said, Oh, look at you. You must be the sister. She stared at that tree. She said, Trees don't talk. Well, I do. What kind of a tree are you? And the tree sang this song. The story tree, the story tree. Listen, 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 listen to the story tree. Hmm, she said, well, that's very interesting. But what is a story? And so the tree told stories. He told stories about the first animals to appear in the world. And he told stories about how cats learned to fight with dogs and where mosquitoes came from. And he told stories and stories and stories after stories until the sun began to get low in the sky. Well, that's all the stories for today, but come back tomorrow, I'll tell you more. Well, the boy and the girl, they ran back to their wigwam. But by the time they got there, the sun had already gone down and the mother was sitting in front of the place. And she said, where have you two been? And they both gave that answer that children always give to that question. Now where? Hmm. And what have you been doing? And they gave that other answer that children always give to that question. 
Nothing. Hmm. Well, I see you've brought back nothing for supper. So tonight we're just going to have hot water. So they had their hot water, and they went right to sleep. But in the middle of the night, the mother woke up to hear the boy and the girl talking in their sleep and laughing <laughs> and singing the story tree, the story tree. Mm. Well, the next morning, the mother waited till the boy and girl had left, and then she turned to her husband. She said, I don't know what the children are up to. I'm sure they're good children. I know they can't be doing anything too bad, but I want to know what it is. I'd like you to follow them. And so he did. Keeping a safe distance behind, he saw them walk down the trail. He saw them both turn down this tiny little path, and he followed them as they zigged and they zagged through the woods, and they came out to this clearing. And then he saw them walk up to this tree and start to talk to it. Well, that was enough. What's going on here? The tree shouted, Oh, you must be the father! The father stared at it. Trees don't talk. Yeah, well, I do. But what kind of a tree are you? And the tree sang this. The story tree, the story tree. Listen, 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 listen to the story tree. Well, that's very, very nice. But what is a story? And so the tree told stories about the very first people to come to the earth. He told stories about the first husband and the first wife and how the wife threw strawberries down on the ground to make the husband learn to love her. He told stories about the first children on earth. And soon the sun was going down. And the tree said, well, that's all the stories for today. Come back tomorrow. I'll tell you more. And they ran back home as fast as they could. But by the time they got there, the sun had gone down and the mother was steaming mad. Where have you been? And the father told her. He didn't want to keep secrets. She said, well, that's very interesting. But what is a story tree? Come tomorrow. We'll show you. And they walked the next morning, all of them, down that trail. They zigged and they zagged through the woods, into the clearing. And then all four of them walked up to that old tree with its old twisty limbs and lumps and bumps. And the tree shout out, Well, I've got the whole family here. That's wonderful. And the mother said, Trees don't talk. He says, Well, I certainly do. She said, That's what I am told. What kind of a tree are you? And they all sang, The story tree, the story tree. Listen, listen, listen. Listen, listen to the story tree. 
Hmm, she said, well, very nice, but what is a story? And the tree told stories of distant lands and of things they had never seen or dreamt of in their lives, of kingdoms and princes and princesses. And by the time he was finished, the sun was getting low in the sky. Well, he said, this has been a great honor for me to tell stories to the whole human family. But it's a very sad day for me because I have no more stories to tell. They stared at him. What? I'm sorry. From now on, you have to be the storytellers. Go out. Pass them around. Teach them to other people. And so they walked home. They didn't know what to do. And then... The boy had a plan, and that night they built a great big fire in the middle of the camp, and all of the families came and sat around the fire, and they ate their suppers. But instead of just going home, the boy said, Wait, I'm going to tell you something you've never heard. And he told them the first story he had heard about the sun and how it grew in the sky from a drop of gold. And the people stared in amazement. All of them saw the pictures in their minds of the story he was telling them. Then the girl told a story, and the mother and the father told a story. And soon the fire was burning low, and the little children were falling asleep. Well, said the boy, Come back tomorrow. We'll tell you more stories. And so it is. After that night, the people began to learn stories, first from each other, then from the trees, then from the leaves, and from the stars, then from their own imaginations. And those stories spread around the world. And like seeds, some of them blew away. And some of those stories took root and grew into beautiful, beautiful trees that made their own stories. And the world has to thank a boy, a girl, a mother, and a father. And of course... The story tree, the story tree, listen, 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 listen to the story tree. The Story Tree, a story told for you by Bob Reiser. And we're going to wrap up today with a story from Sid Lieberman, the great Chicago area storyteller, no longer with us, but has left a legacy of stories that will always be a gift. This is a story called Zen and the Art of Storytelling, and it's uh, lessons about storytelling learned uh, telling stories at a bank company picnic. Here's Sid Lieberman on The Appleseed.
I remember saying to Mr. Hansen on the phone, I don't think storytelling's right for this event. I just think this is a mistake. But he said, no, no, it's perfect. Family entertainment for a family event. Now, my father was a used car salesman, so I know when somebody's trying to sell me. And also, after 11 years in the business, I knew that a company picnic was a recipe for disaster. I said to him, listen, you know, Mr. Hansen, storytelling's quiet. You know, a picnic, are you even gonna have a performance tent? He said, of course, and I like that quiet business. I tell you what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna guarantee that tent is set up way in the corner of the field. Nothing will be around it. And anyways, how wild can we be? We're a bank. <laughs> well, he agreed to everything. He agreed to the sound, to the lighting, when I would go on, the kind of show I was going to do. And against my better judgment, I agreed to do the show. Now, when I first began storytelling, I didn't have sense enough to even worry about who I was telling to, where I was telling. I took a week-long course in storytelling in Door County in Wisconsin. And when I came back, I marched into the north branch of the Evanston Library because I had both of those librarians' kids in my classes over the years. I walked in and I said, Virginia, not only am I a teacher, I'm also a professional storyteller now. I want to tell at the auditorium downtown. She said, one minute. She got on the phone. She called the head of the library. She said, BJ, I got a magnificent storyteller here. If we don't send him up right now, we're going to lose him. <laughs> Perfect act of faith. She never heard me tell one line of a story. That was my first job here in Evanston. About 100 people in the crowd, 90 friends. <laughs> and I was so scared, I thought not only would I forget the stories, I'd forget which stories I was going to tell. I had Adrian sitting in the front row with a signboard and the titles of the stories written on it. God, those first years, I took any job. I did anything. I told Beowulf to 300 junior high kids in a school cafeteria standing in front of a Coke machine. <laughs> I told it birthday parties amid ripped up present wrappings and crying kids. I told it campfires competing with smoke and s'mores. <laughs> I did countless Tuesday night sisterhood meetings. At 10.30 at night after the minutes and the motions, along with the sponge cake and coffee, they served me. I had some strange jobs those early years. Once I was invited to a senior citizen's home, the problem was the person who hired me didn't tell them I was coming. And so when I got there, they greeted me. Strangely, the receptionist said, well, one minute. An administrator came up. She said, well, you wait over there. We'll see what we can do, as if this were all my idea. <laughs> she came in about 10 minutes later with four people, three on walkers and one in a wheelchair, yelling, is this the lecturer? She said, here they are, as if I'd ordered them from a menu. <laughs> well, I thought, better not do a long introduction here. I'd launch into what I thought was a very dramatic folk story. About three minutes into it, all four fell asleep. <laughs> it was a zen moment. I mean, what if a storyteller tells a story and no one hears it? Has it been told? <laughs> I didn't know what to do. Should I wake them up to hear the rest of the story? Should I just tell it and have them sleep? They look so peaceful, I thought maybe I've done my job, I just tiptoed out. <laughs> Perhaps the strangest show in those early years was the Hollywood Bar Mitzvah. At least that's what the fellow called it, who called me from LA to hire me to come out and do my, quote, act for his son's Bar Mitzvah. I said, what kind of stories would you like? He said, stories appropriate for a Bar Mitzvah. And wear a tux. 
The invitation came in a plastic champagne bottle with confetti. Now, a boy read from the Torah that morning, which meant he became an adult in the Jewish community, and you would expect a celebration, but who could expect a Hollywood bar mitzvah? That night, when the people came to the hotel for the celebration, they were met by attendants who opened their car's doors and led them down a red carpet as if they were celebrities. He had hired people to line the walk and ooh and ah. He had three photographers taking photos. When the bar mitzvah boy came, the crowd mobbed him, asking for autographs as if he were a rock singer. My act was sandwiched between a 20-piece band and a magician. The 20-piece band was right out of the 1940s. They were wearing powder blue tuxes. They had a torch singer in a strapless evening gown, a fellow leading who looked like Lawrence Welk. The magician used big cards because he was afraid the crowd wouldn't be able to see the magic tricks. He didn't have worried because they were televising it all <laughs> and broadcasting on big screen television sets set around the hall. When I got up to do my act, Standing there in a tux and a handheld mic, I felt more like Tony Bennett than a storyteller. <laughs> the bar mitzvah boy's parents were wandering around, table hopping, waiters were moving up and back, people were talking. The kids were nowhere to be found. They were off in the arcade playing video games, and I know it was the arcade because a neon sign kept flashing arcade at me. <laughs> well, Jewish storytelling seemed a little bit superfluous at that event. As the years went by, the venues got better. The jobs got better. I played the World Theater in Minneapolis, the Barber Theater here in Evanston. I did a convention in Miami. They picked me up in a limo. I played with all the buttons. <laughs> I wanted to roll the window down and yell, I'm not going to the prom. <laughs> I'm an artist. They put me up at the Fontainebleau Hotel in a suite, four rooms on the top floor. One whole room was a wet bar. We even had a director in a rehearsal. The director said to me, of course you want a roving spot. I figured, sure, why not? I'll walk a lot. <laughs> it made the jobs easier to do. It made it a little harder to combine it with my day job, teaching. I began to feel like Superman. Clark Kent during the week and Superman on weekends. One Monday, I came back after a really wonderful festival to meet five sleepy classes. I got so aggravated in the middle of the day, I said, you know what? People paid to hear me talk all weekend. And one kid looked up and earnestly asked, why? <laughs> By the time I got to the picnic, I convinced myself everything was going to be okay. The guy agreed to everything I had said. It was a bank, you know, conservative. The tent was going to be way off on the side. And then I got there, and I tell you, I entered the grove, and I realized the picnic could have been brought to you by the people that had created the Hollywood bar mitzvah. <laughs> on my left, mountains of potato salads, hamburgers, hot dogs, a sign tacked to the tree, handwritten saying, grub. On my right, a calliope whining off-key circus melodies. And that was to accompany the horses and the camels and the elephants that were giving kids rides around the grounds. The grounds were awash with jugglers and mimes. There were tents everywhere, a fortune-telling tent, a face-painting tent, a haunted house tent, an eating tent, a zoo tent. Out in front of the zoo tent, a very bored-looking woman stood with a snake wrapped around her neck. I was standing there surveying the scene when Hanson arrived, smiling at me as if I'd come for a bank loan. <laughs> he said, so what do you think? 
pointing at what looked to me like Walt Disney done by Ken Russell. <laughs> I tried to be polite. I said, it looks like they're enjoying themselves. He said, follow me. I'll take you to the performance tent. And he headed to a tent directly in the center of the picnic. I said, Mr. Hansen, I thought you said the tent was going to be off in the corner. He said, well, we had a little problem. You see, the haunted house tent didn't come, and so we're using the performance tent for the haunted house. We're using the eating tent for the performance tent. It's going to be an eating performance tent. But it's perfect. Don't worry. Now, when we got in there, an accordion quintet was just finishing. He said, try out the stage. You'll see. You'll like it. You'll like it. I was clomping around up on the stage. There were maybe 100 seats in front of this small stage in the back picnic tables for people who didn't want to eat outside. He said, we have one problem. The problem is you're not on the schedule. So no one knows you're going to do the show. He said, I'll tell you what, though. I sent for a bullhorn. And when it comes, I'm going to walk around the grounds and tell them that you're going to be on at 1 o'clock. If the bullhorn doesn't come, what I'm going to do is I'll stop all the events and we'll usher everybody in here. <laughs> Just what I need, right? Kids glazed with excitement and sugar, taking off camels and elephants to come in to hear some stories. <laughs> I said, I don't think that's a great idea, Mr. Hansen. He said, well, I hope the bullhorn gets here. At 1 o'clock, the bullhorn hadn't arrived. And so Hansen and I stood at the edge of the stage eyeing 100 empty seats. He looked at his watch, he said, I think you should go on anyways. And before I had a chance to say anything, he bounded up on the stage and gave me a lavish introduction. <laughs> he began to applaud and he waved me up on the stage. I didn't know what to do. I walked up, I turned my back to the empty chairs. I said, Mr. Hansen, there's no one out there. Nobody's listening. He just ignored me. He said, and now Sid Liebman. And he spun me around. He was oblivious to the fact that he'd got my name wrong. He applauded all the way off the stage, applauded all the way to the edge of the tent, gave me a thumbs up and left. I turned then towards my imaginary audience. I thanked them for their imaginary applause. And then I did my set. I did a 45-minute set for an imaginary audience. I think they loved it. I stopped at all the right spots for laughter. I milked the sad moments for tears. I even engaged in some between-story patter with the audience. Every once in a while, someone in the back would kind of look up and eye me as if, what's going on here? And then he would return to his potato salad. When the show ended, I thanked them for their thunderous standing ovation. I was going to do an encore, but I thought, man, that's probably pushing it. I did blow kisses to them as I left. I was standing at the side of the stage when Hanson arrived about five minutes later. He said, so, was I right? I said, you were right. They loved it. <laughs> it was perfect entertainment, family entertainment for a family event. He said, I tell you what, I'll hire you for next year. <laughs> Let me pay you, he said. He pulled out his checkbook. He said, uh, so how do you spell Liebman? I said, with humility, Mr. Hanson, with a lot of humility.
Sid Lieberman with a performance of a story called Zen and the Art of Storytelling. What a pleasure it's been for me to be with you this hour. We hope you'll join us on the next hour of The Appleseed, filled with stories for you and your family. And of course, you can also uh, join us online or in the podcast. Just Google The Appleseed Podcast to find not only the full hour-long episodes that you enjoy of the show, but also many episodes, a single story long, just a few minutes long, in case you only have a few minutes and you want to fill them with a great story. Today you can find a Willie Claflin tale called Just One More Story there in the podcast. You can find it again by Googling the Appleseed Podcast or by visiting us at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. This hour was written by Lacey Ivey, our audio engineer, Carly Robison, our producer, Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.